All right, guys. If you have your Bible, open and find the Old Testament book of Joshua. We began our study last Sunday, and we tried to give a, an, a, an overview of the whole book. And um, if you missed that, we hope to have that up on the pod- podcast soon if you want to hear that and weren't able to. But today we're going to dive into the book in earnest. So find chapter 1 when you find Joshua. We're going to think through that chapter today. It's a super encouraging chapter for sure. It recounts for us the beginning of their preparation to enter into the promised land. Uh, Just to situate Joshua in your Bible, you know um, how God in the book of Exodus led Israel out of bondage in Egypt by mighty hand, uh, out of, after having been slaves for four centuries plus a few years, and led them out to, to lead them into the land that he had promised Abraham and his descendants to give to them, provided that they would walk in obedience to him, provided that they would walk and live according to the law that he gave them in Exodus chapter 20. And if you know the story, you know that they didn't do that. They rebelled right away. They complained um, that it was hot in the wilderness. There was no water. I mean, the, uh, wish, we wish we were back in Egypt where we, at least we had good food. And they, they just complained, complained, complained. And they complained. And because of their sin and grumbling against the Lord, uh, his, his judgment on them was that they not enter into the promised land, that they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. And it would not be that first generation who had been brought out of bondage in Egypt. It would not be they who entered into the promised land, but it would be their children, potentially. Um, He consigned that first generation to die there in the wilderness. Um, And it's to their children that the mantle would now fall to enter into the promised land. And hence you come to the book of Deuteronomy, which the very name of the book means second law. He's going to give the law a second time in Deuteronomy chapter 5 to that second generation to enter into the promised land, that they might go into the promised land and live according to his law, live according to his word. He be their God and they be his people blessed in the land. And it is at that moment, having given them the law a second time in Deuteronomy, we come to Joshua now as they prepare then to enter into that land finally. And I I mentioned last week this general outline of the book of Joshua, how it all revolves around the promised land. Chapters 1 through 5 uh, are all about their preparation to enter into the land. Chapters 1 to 5. Chapters 6 to 12 are about the actual conquests to take the land. Right? Then you have what some might find the most tedious part of the book, chapters 13 through 21 is just about how they are to divide up and apportion that land among the 12 tribes having taken that land. Um, And then the last three chapters, 22 to 24, are about then just a reminder how they were to live in the land as as the people of God um, once they're there. So today with chapter 1, we're on the front end of that preparation to enter the land. So if you found that place in your Bible, let's read the text for today. We won't always be able to do this in this series because some weeks we're going to be covering several chapters at a time. So it just wouldn't be feasible. So, but whenever we can, we're going to read the text. So today's one of those days. We'll read chapter 1 in its entirety. So let's dive in. 
beginning in verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses, uh, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness, uh, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I, I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be, able, may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, pre prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has, said to, as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you, as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words... Whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy and inspired and inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And I pray that, Lord, that you would help us to see the truth, have eyes to see the truth in this passage. Not only what it, it teaches us here about Joshua, but about Jesus. And Lord, help us to see the truth. Help us to have minds to understand um, what we just read. And give us hearts to embrace and love the truth that we see here. And wills to obey whatever it is you call us to do. Give me the help that I need to teach. And please give us all ears to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, just in this one chapter that we just read, you can see all of the main themes that I mentioned last week. And if you weren't here, those main themes prominent in the entire book of Joshua are the leader. I mean, you start with this transition from Moses to Joshua. So the leader, who is the leader is prominent. The land is prominent. The law is prominent. And the Lord is prominent in, in Joshua. And each of those are not just prominent in the whole book, but they're right here in chapter 1. But as I said, this chapter is about their preparation to enter into the land, the promised land. And the focus, and you maybe you picked up on this, and I hope you did, because I hope whatever I say on a Sunday, I hope you can very easily see where it's found in the text. And it doesn't feel like, where did he see that? I hope even as we read it, you saw it. It seems to be about what the Lord is assuring them of as they prepare to enter into the land. What is he assuring of them of as they prepare to enter the land? In particular, if you're taking notes, I, I think, and I want to point them out here, I, I think he at least assures them of three things that seem to be very prominent in the text. He assures them first of his promise. That's right off the bat in verses 1 through 4, his promise. And we'll talk about what that promise is. Secondly, from verses 5 to 9, he assures them of his presence with them. So his promise, his presence, and then really the latter half of the chapter from verses 10 to 18, he assures them of his providence. And I, and I see that in a couple of ways. So if there's going to be two points beneath the third one, um, like sub points, I guess if you want to call them, his, his providence over his purpose, and secondly, over his people. So not just over events, God is sovereign over his purpose to bring about the events that he has ordained to come to pass. But not just over the events, but about the hearts and the wills of people to bring those events about. Okay? So this is a very encouraging chapter. Encouraging not just because of the, the character of God that it reveals, and it does do that, but also the biblical assurance that, that what, what we see him assuring them of in that day he also assures us of in even greater measure in Jesus Christ. All right? That's, that's what I hope to see this morning in this passage. Yes, to see the character of God on display for them in that day, but also as a means to see more fully his character toward us in Christ. So that said, let's dive in and think first about the assurance he gives them of his promise. As we pointed out last week, this, this book begins with, with in, in a sense, with devastating news. It wouldn't have been new to them. I mean, they would have known it in the last book. But you're hit in the opening words of the book with the somber and sobering reminder about the death of Moses. Uh, and, and again, just remember, we pointed this out last week, but some of you weren't here. Just remember what, what you were told about Moses just one page earlier in your Bible uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 34, the very end of Deuteronomy, verses 10 through 12. We were told there about Moses that there has not arisen a prophet since Moses in Israel, like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him, for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, and to all his servants, and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination 
to think that maybe for the people of Israel, upon when, you, when the first words are, are about the death of Moses, that Moses, that it might have been at least somewhat of an anxious time as a people. Uh, I mean, think about moments in our own history that were anxious moments. Um, I, I can imagine that the assassination or the death of a president creates an anxious moment, an anxious atmosphere among a whole people. I mean, I can remember, and most of our students here weren't barely alive then, but I mean, we, some of us can remember 9-11, right? And the, and the, the, the anxious time, just the, just the anxious atmosphere that was over the whole nation of people. We're in a, in a pandemic right now, or coming out of one, Lord willing, but just anxious time as a whole people. And you can imagine that feeling multiplied for Israel who had been slaves in Egypt for 430 years. I mean, again, I said last week that, that for us, that would be as if we were slaves to a foreign country since 1591. And just think about that. That, feels, that has to feel like this will be the forevermore reality. I mean, this will never change. And yet it, and it changed. The Lord did something. But He used a particular person through which to do it. Moses. Moses, this one who since for 430 years it hasn't happened. But through this one it did. And He let us out. God let us out through Him. But now He's gone. He's dead. And they had to feel like they were leaderless. And, 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 and with that, not just what do we do, but leaderless meaning now we are just out in this wilderness vulnerable, vulnerable to Egypt hearing about it and coming to take us back or any other nation hearing about it and coming to annihilate us in the wilderness. or where, you know. So in this case, Still in the, in the first verse, though, in this anxious moment, we're shown that God has already raised up the next one to lead them. Uh, because as soon as we're reminded about the death of Moses, the Moses that we just heard in Deuteronomy 34 was the one with whom the Lord knew and spoke face to face, as it were. We're told in verse 1 that the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun. So the Lord has not stopped speaking to the people. Uh, he hasn't. His, his word was not tied to Moses. Um, and his word now comes to them through Joshua. Joshua, who we said last week, was a type of Christ. Um, what I mean by that is he and his life foreshadowed. I mean, they really happened. But God and his providence caused he, he and his life to foreshadow greater things coming in Jesus Christ. We'll try to show this along the way, but in, in, in light of the death of Moses, the word of, of the Lord now came to them through Joshua. And the first thing that the Lord says to him in verse 2 is, Arise. He said, well, he said, first he reminds him of what he was already anxious about. Moses, my servant, is dead. <laughs> so Joshua had to be thinking, what's he about to say next? And he says, Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land. We'll stop there who knows what Joshua was thinking at this moment um, on the one hand maybe he saw it coming I mean he was Moses close assistant um, and I'm I, no doubt he 
He knew that the Lord had told Moses all those years ago that Moses wouldn't be the one to lead them into the promised land because of his sin at Meribah and the water from the rock. But that could have led Joshua to wonder how they would ever enter into the land. If Moses couldn't lead them into the promised land, who can? Even if he was Moses' assistant. Uh, I mean, God, through Moses, led the people out of Egypt in order for Moses to lead them into the promised land, and he didn't do it. He failed. Why, did Joshua, why would Joshua automatically think he would be any different or any better? Um, but he finds, you know, so uh, it's not a foregone conclusion, in other words, that, that, that Joshua would have thought that he would be the one to lead them. But here he finds out that is exactly the plan. Moses is dead, therefore you go. But what comfort, what assurance does God give to Joshua as soon as he gives him that task? Look at the rest of verse 2 and then verse 3. Go into the land, into the land that I am giving you. More on that in a minute. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. So he reminds Joshua of his promise. Yeah, Joshua, you're going to be the one. What assurance do I have, Lord? Remember my promise. The Lord had promised this land to his people. When had he promised it to Moses? He says, just as I promised to Moses. When did he do that? Well, there's one place at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3.8, God told Moses, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and broad land, flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. That's that land. But even Moses would have known in that moment that this is a promise that predates him. In Exodus 6, we're told there that this is a much older promise. Exodus 6, 8, the Lord told Moses, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. And with that, we know that the promise referred to here in Joshua 1 is as old as Genesis 12. We saw that last week. God called Abram out of his pagan life and pagan land to go to the land that God would show him. And it's the, 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 the promise of that land that the Lord repeated. He gave to Abraham in, Exodus, in Genesis 12, in Genesis 15, in Genesis 17. It's the land that it's the promise that he repeated to Abraham's son Isaac in Genesis 26:3. It's the land, the promise of that land that he repeated to his grandson Jacob in, in Genesis 35. This was a promise that the Lord had first given to Abraham and had specifically repeated to successive generations. But put yourself in Joshua's shoes. Think about how many years. Let's be more, how many centuries had passed since that promise was given? And they were still waiting on their fulfillment. Hundreds and hundreds of years. How was repeating this promise to Joshua supposed to be an assurance? Right? How is a repetition of a promise that we've already waited hundreds and hundreds of years to be fulfilled, how is that necessarily an assurance to Joshua in this moment? 
Well, several things come to mind. For one thing, Joshua himself had seen the Lord, as it were, in language-defying ways. Remember, he had been up on the mountain with Moses, right, and seen him there. And so no doubt, through those kinds of experiences, he knew that the Lord was able to fulfill this promise that we've waited all this time to be fulfilled. He's repeating it to me now. I don't have any doubt that the Lord is able to do it. But for another thing, Joshua would have known that the promise in question here didn't just involve land. He did promise land to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but he promised more than that, did he not? He promised that, among other things, that he promised offspring to Abraham. Remember that? You will have a son, and through that son, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's part of that same promise. So land as well as offspring. He began by promising a son to Abraham, but not culminating with just one son, but that offspring would grow into a whole nation of people. Why is that important? Because Joshua would have been aware, too, that God's promise to Abraham to have a son, Abraham had to wait 25 years before it came to pass. But it did come to pass. Just because God works on his own time instead of ours doesn't mean he doesn't keep his word. And Joshua would have also known that in Genesis 15, if you go back to Genesis 15 and read it, you can do it in your own time, God also prophesied to Abraham in Genesis 15 that not only would his offspring turn into a great nation, but that nation would eventually go into slavery to a foreign power. That happened in Egypt. But, and he also prophesied there that he would lead them out by a mighty power. So Joshua saw the fulfillment of that promise with his own eyes, even though it took a long time to come about. But it did. And Josh, as Joshua was sitting in the, in the shadow of Moses' death, and the Lord spoke to him to tell him he would be the one to lead the people against the Canaanites and into the promised land, it really would have been a tremendous comfort to him to be reminded that God had promised to give them that land. And he didn't just know the fear of the Lord from being on the mountain with Moses, but he knew the trustworthiness of the Lord from the fulfillment of all those other aspects of the same promise. The Lord would keep his promise to them. God's past faithfulness is motivation for our future faith. It was meant to be that for Joshua here. And not surprisingly, Joshua, as Joshua is a type of Christ to come, like I said, the same is true in Jesus' life. Just one example. How did Jesus rely on the promises of God for his own life and ministry? Just one example would be Jesus' quotation of Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my right hand, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, the footstool for your feet. Jesus knew that that was a promise and a prophecy about him a thousand years earlier, to, given through David. We know that because Jesus himself quoted that verse knowingly about himself in Matthew 22. So Jesus trusted the promise of God about himself to help him press on in his saving work. And the same is true for us. 
The same is true. We have been given so many great and precious promises. We just have. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. John 6, 40. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will, be, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, 6. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Romans 8, 28. And if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Each day has enough trouble of, of its own. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Matthew 6. So many promises. So many promises. And for all these promises and so many more, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 1.20, they are all yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Just like the old hymn famously says, how firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus hath fled? Don't discount the profound assurance of his promises. When Joshua was no doubt at the lowest moment of his life, how did the Lord come to him first in demonstration of great power or what? With a promise. He came with a promise. He came with his word first. You go and lead this people into the land. I have promised it to you. But the Lord gave Joshua more than just his promise, as if that were not enough here. As you keep reading the word of the Lord to Joshua in chapter 1, he also assured Joshua, secondly, of his presence with him and with the people. He first mentions his promise to Joshua in verse 3, as we have seen. But notice where the emphasis shifts in verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Why? Because God has promised to give them this land? Yes, but is that the reason given in verse 5? What's the reason given in verse 5 that no one will be able to stand? Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. This isn't just the assurance of his promise, but of his presence. Not just the unmistakable reality of his presence indicated by just as I was with Moses but also the unending reaffirmation of his presence I will never leave you nor forsake you and it's on this basis explicitly that Joshua is told in verse 6 be strong and courageous and this same thing this same link is repeated in verse 9 have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. His presence with them was meant to drive out all fear, give them strength. And this, this promise of his presence with them is, just get this, this is, get used to this. This promise of his presence with them in Joshua is found twice here in chapter 1. It's repeated again at the end of chapter 2, 
twice more in chapter 3, again in chapter 4, in chapter 6, twice more in chapter 10, in chapter 13, in chapter 14, in chapter 21, and twice more in chapter 23. Over and over and over and over again. 14 times from beginning to the end of the book and everywhere in between, the Lord meant for them to know it. And in verses 7 and 8 here in chapter 1, the Lord tells Joshua to tell his people not to depart from his word, to meditate on it day and night, to walk in obedience to it. Yes, he says, so that they will be prosperous and, and no success, but also that, so that they will be reminded repeatedly of his presence. We know and we were reminded of his presence and of his nearness to us through his word. We feel distant from him when we neglect his word. And let's, let's lay the cards fully on the table here in Joshua. In Joshua here, the continued presence of the Lord with them was in large part, as it was with the previous generation, dependent on them being obedient to the law. They will find that out, by the way, the hard way in chapter 7, when they are defeated, surprisingly, at Ai. Why? Because of the sin of Achan. Right? And, 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 it, and one man caused the whole people to be guilty. Chapter 7 begins that saying, the people, the whole people, the people broke faith with the Lord because of the sin of Achan. So because of their sin and, and, and their disobedience, the Lord was not with them in the battle against Ai. And they were defeated there until they dealt with the sin and returned to the Lord, and they, then they defeated Ai. And the same was true of Jesus when, when he came for us and for our salvation. Our salvation was dependent on his obedience to the law at every point. Hear me when I say this. In, in one very real sense, we are saved by works. But it's Jesus' works, not ours. Work had to be done. We just couldn't do it. He did it for us. And the Bible is clear that Jesus committed no sin. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. Jesus himself was able with complete honesty and integrity able to pray in John 17, 4, Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Which was what? Among other things, to keep the law on behalf of his people. And because he kept the law perfectly, we can now be saved and redeemed before God on the basis of our faith in his finished work. And being in Christ, we can know the assurance of his presence with us and in us in a way that Joshua and the people of Israel never did know. Today is Ascension Sunday. Did you know that? But none of you woke up thinking that. Ascension Sunday. Ascension was actually Thursday, 40 days after Easter. Right? And so that today is Ascension Sunday where we remember Jesus' ascension back to the right hand of the Father. And we remember His ascension not only to remember that He rules and He reigns over all creation from that position, but also it is from that position that He poured out His Holy Spirit upon us 
on, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, which is next Sunday, by the way. And now, where Joshua and the people of Israel could know the presence of God among them only insofar as they obeyed, we now know His presence not just among us, but within us continually by His Holy Spirit not on our ability to obey, but on, based on Jesus' perfect obedience in our place. So it, 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 there's never an interruption in his presence with us. And his presence in us now moves us to walk in obedience in a way that it didn't with them. In he, for just one example, in Hebrews 13.5, the author of Hebrews exhorts, this is a, a random exhortation from what we're talking about here, but in Hebrews 13.5, the author of Hebrews exhorts us saying this, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. How are we as Christians, how, how are we to be motivated and encouraged to keep that exhortation? He continues in the second half of that verse. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He quotes Joshua 1.5. Why? Not just to say that the presence of the Lord with us is more satisfying than the love of money, more satisfying than whatever money can buy in this world and in this life, but also that the presence of God in us by His Spirit moves in us to create that trust in His Word, to take His Word for it and find our satisfaction in Him. The assurance of His presence that Joshua and the people of Israel um, had of his presence will be a, it will it'll be a breathtaking reality to behold in Joshua crazy stuff man because he was present with them but at every stage in Joshua we are to see it for what it is and draw the biblical conclusion that we have been given an even greater gift and an even greater assurance through Christ in his holy spirit so the Lord has assured Joshua as they prepare to enter the promised land of his promise and his presence. But thirdly and finally, he assures Joshua of his providence, which we see in the remainder of the chapter. Like I said in the introduction, when we look at what we see in the latter half of Joshua 1, we actually see his providence, which, what does his providence mean? God's providence is just his Um, it's his preservation of all things. He upholds all things by the, by the power of his word. He keeps everything in existence, and he governs over everything that happens in his world. So he preserves it, he governs it. That's God's providence. And we see God's providence here described on two fronts. First, in his purposes, and secondly, in his people. The first being sovereignty over events that happen, and the second being his sovereignty over human hearts and human wills. I want us to see both of those quickly before we close. First of all, let's see his sovereignty over his purposes, over events that God will cause to come about. This is seen in the simple fact that God is the main actor in chapter 1. He's the, he's the main actor taking the, the action in chapter 1. Yes, they are told to go take the land. 
But what land? What land in chapter 1 are they told to go take? Verse 11, the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. He's giving it to you. In fact, back in verse 3, he technically said he had already given it to them. Go over this Jordan, you and all these people, into the land that I am giving you. Uh, verse 3, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have, I have given to you. It's already been given. So the Lord is actually, in Joshua 1, just working out in space and in time what he had already decreed in eternity past to do. And notice in verse 13 that God is providing, God is providing you a place of rest, and he will give you this land. And then again in verse 15, take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This is not a thing that's in question. The repetition is meant to confirm that. God has willed it to happen, and he will, it will providentially by his hand come to pass. No doubt it's passages like this. This was, this was Paul's Bible. And I have no doubt that it's passages like this that, that caused him to write things like Ephesians 1.11, that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Secondly, it's not just the working out of events. But even to do that requires his sovereign providence over human hearts and human wills. We see that all over the Bible. We saw it in, in, in Exodus. You know, God, is, God tells the people of Israel, before you, before you leave Egypt, just go to all your Egyptian neighbors and basically say, give me all your stuff. And they did. Give me all your stuff. Sure. I mean, he's, that, that's the Lord's sovereign over human hearts. But we see that here in an interesting way. We actually see this in the fact that beginning in verse 12 of Joshua 1, there's a passage, the rest of the passage, beginning in verse 12 to verse 18, that whole part of this chapter is not addressed to everybody. It's just directly addressed to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. I mean, why single those guys out? You got 12 tribes, and he just singled these guys out. Joshua, tell all the people this. But Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, you need to tell them this as well. Why single these guys out? Because of what we read in Numbers chapter 32. In that chapter, just to be brief, those tribes in particular, they were like, hey, I know that we're supposed to go over the Jordan into that land over here, but we kind of like this land. This land is good for our cows and stuff to the east of the Jordan. This is good for our cows. So Moses, we, you guys go. You guys go into the land. We're going to stay here. And Moses is like, are you kidding me? Uh... So you're just, let me get this straight, you're going to watch them fight while you just sit here and feed your cows, right? And it didn't sit well with Moses at all. And after, after coming down on them hard, he eventually got them at least to agree, okay, we'll help you guys move in, we'll help you fight, but we're coming back. 
And uh, it, you know, um, I don't, I think even when they said that, Moses was like, I'm not sure if I believe you. Because he, after they said that, he still instructed Eliezer the priest, some other guys, watch these guys. You know, when we go in, watch them. If, if they, leave them alone if they do what they said they'd done. But if they don't do what they just told me they were going to do. So he didn't really believe them. And I tend to side with Moses on that. I'm sure that they gave him a reason to doubt. But when you come to Joshua chapter 1, that's why those tribes are singled out because of what happened earlier in Numbers 32. And look at the work that the Lord did in their heart from Numbers 32 to Joshua 1, verses 16 to 18. They answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things. Oh, I don't know about all that, but they thought they did. So we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your word, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Clearly, their attitude had changed from Numbers 32 to Joshua 1. We're going to see these same three tribes at the end of the book, later in the book, but in a way still that highlights their devotion to the Lord. The Lord sovereignly worked in the hearts of the most obstinate people, His own people, to His purpose to enter the land. And when it was time to go in to possess it, they were all in. The same is true for us. All of us are obstinately dead in our trespasses and sins when we are commanded to repent and turn our faith to Christ. Jesus himself even said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And in Acts chapter 16, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to Paul's message. That's what the text says. In 2 Timothy 2.25, God is the one who grants repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So the Lord's sovereignty over human hearts shown in Joshua 1, it gives us not only a window into the power and mercy of God uh, evident in our salvation, but it also gives us a reason to endure confidently praying for the salvation of others we know and love who have not come to God in repentance and faith. Because no matter how far away they are, no matter how obstinate they appear to be, Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So what the, what the Lord can do for the king's heart, he has done in our hearts, and he can do, as the hymn says, in the vilest sinner's heart. So the assurances that the Lord gave to Joshua in chapter 1 are of his promise, of his presence, of his providence. And they are all assurances that we have received, everyone, in an even greater measure in Jesus Christ.